Hello and welcome to the MIT Press podcast. Today I'm really excited to be speaking with David Levi Strauss. David is a writer, critic and the chair of the MFA program in art writing at the School of Visual Arts in New York. David is the author of multiple books on photography, text and politics. Most recently, Coillusion, Dispatches from the End of Communication, published by the MIT Press last month. Coillusion consists of around 100 texts split into two halves. The first half of these texts are dispatches from the run-up to the election of Donald Trump as president, whilst the second half of these texts uh, reflect on politics after Trump's election, often becoming more experimental uh, and adopting the voice of Trump and his cohorts. The book also features photographs taken by two photographers, Susan Maysalas and Peter Van Agtmael. So thanks for coming and speaking to me today via Zoom. And I want to start with a, a really broad question. In Coillusion, you describe a break between images and words and their relationship to truth. And my understanding of any form of representation is that it's always, to a degree, insufficient and already an abstraction of the truth. And I wondered if you could elaborate on what you mean when you talk about this break. And I also want you to elaborate more broadly on, on how you view the relationship between text, image, and representations of truth in the book. Well, this is something that I've been thinking about and working with for a long time, for my whole life as a writer, really. Um, I mean, at the very beginning, I was trained as a photographer, so I was taking photographs and writing. I was a poet initially and trying to put the two together and um, that immediately revealed a lot of this relationship between them that was fraught and it was very difficult to break the, the a kind of lock that set in where the photograph would try to illustrate the text and the text would try to explain the photograph and I realized that when you if you can break that lock all kinds of other things open up in the relation so that's that's what I was interested in with text and image as far as the changes that have happened more recently um, I mean this has been going on <clears throat> certainly for the last decade but uh, but longer than that and in my terms, it's accelerated over the last four years with the election of Trump that the, I never know quite how to describe this, but I started noticing that the, the text, I mean, images were starting to lift off of the screens. They were starting to separate. And I see it almost physically, although it's not, it's actually not a physical thing. It's a conceptual thing. And when they began to do that was about the time that the language that we use, that we used to use for political discourse began to be indistinguishable from the language that we used for entertainment, celebrity, culture, uh, all of those other things. And also because of other things that were happening in the, in the communications environment online and on social media, this separation, I mean, it, the separation was intensified and became more and more apparent a separation between images and text that they were paired in in the in a kind of media sphere and more between image and text and the real uh, i don't know how else to say it do you, do you mean that like in the, the kind of just the broad sense of the kind of reality that we 
we all share, or do you mean that in the kind of Lacanian sense? In the former. Okay, yeah. Yeah, okay. Can you talk a little bit about the form of the book? Because it's, I've heard you say in interviews before that you, you tend to draft really thoroughly, but with the way that this book is structured, you didn't have that luxury. So there's a real speed to the writing. It's quite ephemeral, quite a quick book. Um, and I was wondering, when I was reading it, I had thought about the kind of Samuel Beckett quote where he talks about the need for a form that accommodates the mess. And I was wondering if that's kind of what's going on in the way that you're writing this book and you're, you're adopting the voices of these people you're trying to understand and be critical of. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a good way to look at it. Um, it. It was very different for me to be under these very quick deadlines, which, since I'm not a professional journalist uh, generally and I, I'm not used to working that way. But in this case, I was on the floor of the conventions and something had to be written you know, under deadline within an hour after we got out of there. And to my surprise, I liked that quite a lot. It put a pressure on it that I was new to me. And as you say, it's, it seemed appropriate to the situation and the process mirrored what was happening in front of me, where everything was changing very quickly. And even though the overall structure was very overdetermined and spectacular, what happened inside of that was ephemeral and quick. Uh, and you never knew how, when it was going to change. It changed very quickly. So the writing tried to keep up with that. And as I say, I don't have a lot of experience with that. So it was a new thing to me. And it, it was, uh, as a writer, it was exciting. And what uh, brought you to the decision to take on the voices of Trump and his supporters? And I don't feel like satirize is necessarily the right word. It's a bit more of a kind of, I don't know, how would you describe it when you take on those voices in your writing? Yeah, thank you. I, I, I mean, I don't think of it as satire. I, re, I realize that some people will see it that way. Taking on the voices started to happen in the first part of the book with these 35 uh, dispatches from the conventions and after the conventions continuing with the campaigns. I think the first dispatch was probably one called the elites. And I believe that I had spent the day with Kansas delegation. I grew up in a small town in Kansas, and so I kind of gravitated to that delegation and actually met people who knew people that I knew back home. And of course, virtually everyone in my area, in my town, and in my county voted for Trump. So I knew them and I knew how they were thinking. And with the elites, I started to write in their voice. And it felt write. So I continued to do that and also to to try to write in the voice of the regime, the different parts of the new regime, and also the voices of complicity, the different parts of the social body that were responding to this massive change. And once I got into those different voices, it just became... I haven't written that much fiction, but the fiction that I have written, it, it's like getting into a character. And once you sort of feel your way into that space of writing, it's, uh, you can go back to it. There becomes a problem later of getting out of it, which was certainly a, a problem for me. Mm -hmm. Did you find that you were able to find some more sort of empathy towards that voice? Is it the more you wrote in it or was it more of a, did that not really happen? It did happen. 
it did happen. The only way that I could, as a writer, figure out how to understand what was happening to us was to inhabit that language. And as I say, I, I grew up with people who are now supporting Trump. So I already had empathy. I mean, I, I know those people. I love those people. I, they're not stupid. They're not evil. So the empathy was no problem. But getting into the, getting inside the language, which is partly the language that Trump himself uses, which is quite distinct, and that they respond to for very different reasons than my liberal friends respond to them to that. But also, as I got into the language, I started to understand more how they were seeing things and how the whole phenomenon was, was working. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to find that other than the kind of base empathy you have for all people, my political empathy with Trump supporters... The ground that I tend to find easiest to share with them is that kind of aggression towards a kind of elite. And then it kind of trails off to much more different kind of base, the worst kind of base urges to be sort of xenophobic and racist. But reading this book now is is actually really interesting because you kind of read it and it, as I've read it recently, it does line up again with the run up to the 2020 election, which is obviously been hugely affected by COVID-19. But I did want to ask you that how you have watched this election unfurl. Have you noticed any major difference? Have you noticed any you know major similarities? Because as I read it, I felt like there was far too many concerning repetitions. Yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, any time you write a book, it takes over a year to produce the book. So it's a bit of a speculation um, and there's always the worry that by the time it's published, things will have changed so much that it, it won't be relevant anymore. I didn't think that was going to happen with this because I thought I was actually dealing with causes and effects that went pretty deeply and when we're not going to be superseded. But now I'm surprised by um, what, you, what you just pointed to that there are a lot of repetitions and the language, certainly his language has not changed and the language of Trump supporters has not changed. It's It's been the same from the very beginning and uh, liberals hear it and see it and are shocked by it every time, which, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it hasn't changed. It's the same. It's always the same. It hasn't gotten worse. It hasn't gotten better. It's it's constant. So in that way, the, langu the language certainly hasn't changed. Conditions have changed. And, you know, right now we're seeing Trump's poll numbers sink and, uh, you know, he's losing in the battleground states. And it's a very different situation when bodies are stacking up. It's the first time that he's really faced this kind of situation. So things are changing, but it's a long way till November. Um, and uh, it things could snap back into place. My record as a prognosticator was damaged so badly by the last four years that I hesitate to predict at this point what's going to happen. I, I, I really don't know what's going to happen in the next month, especially now that this coronavirus has upended all expectations. So I don't know what's going to happen next month. I certainly don't know what's going to happen in three months or six months. Mm, yeah. And how do you feel about the response of the Democratic Party or the, or the attitude of the Democratic Party going into this election versus the last one? Uh, I'm continually disappointed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
I mean, I've been involved in electoral politics from a very young age. I got involved in Kansas when I was uh, before voting age. And at that point, voting age was 21. We got it changed to 18. So I was able to vote for the first time at 19. And I worked for George McGovern in Kansas and we lost everything in the biggest landslide in history to Nixon. And that shocked me. It shocked me that my generation I was convinced that my generation, once we got the vote, we're going gonna to change everything and that we would all come out to vote in record numbers and that that would change things. And it didn't. We didn't come out to vote. And many of us voted for Nixon. So that generational, I mean, I, from that point on, my belief in generational change was shaken. And I don't think it ever recovered from that. But and in this coming election, it's it's remarkably there are I see a lot of similarities to that time, where the the U.S. is so unbelievably divided, and it's um, more or less right down the middle politically. And similarly, if eighteen to thirty-five year olds come out in mass, everything will change. If they don't, we could be looking at another four years. And do you think uh, a Joe Biden as president offers a, a radically different vision of the country as to Trump? Uh, yes, it's it's radically different than Trump, but almost anything would be. You know, I keep going back to, and I'm rereading the book, you know, I'm tracking this, uh, watching this thing happen. And right after it happened, I was amazed by what a what an incredibly destructive act it was. I understand parts of why people took that step, why they felt like they had to do it, but but it was a, a tremendously destructive act. And so we just he needs to be removed from office and that has to happen in November, however it happens. One thing I wanted to ask you was there's sort of no doubt the election of Trump was a, a very sort of damaging phenomena and it's sort of emboldened fascists across America and degraded public discourse in many ways. However, do you think it's a bit of a risk to think of um, the kind of pre-Trump, pre-social media public sphere as better than it was? Because, I mean, there's critiques of American media has always played a role in kind of manufacturing consent for American imperialism and capitalism. Do, Do you think there's a danger in overemphasizing Trump and missing the broader picture of what needs to change. Yes, that's the big danger. Absolutely. And it needs to be kept in mind all the time. But, you know, and I have these discussions with with my students all the time who are most of which who are in their 20s and 30s and who see things very differently because of their experience and and who often argue that Trump is just is just a symptom of something that's been there in American politics from the very beginning that's true he didn't invent it he doesn't even really believe it it's he embraced it because he knew that it was a winning it was a way to win it was a way to gain power to take power that's all true but there's also a danger of underestimating trump um which comes from the left who see him as a as only a symptom and or as a figure of fun as a as a joke i guess for me i mean i've spent my whole life looking at the way images and and words work 
in the communications environment and how that relates to the political world. And I see things happening there that are different in intensity and in some cases even in kind from what's happened before in American political life as I've observed it. This is new and it needs to be confronted very directly. So what does a a post-Trump media sphere look like? What are the kind of shifts in behavior that you think are necessary from writers, journalists, but readers and what 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 does that look like what should we be demanding well it's changed in just in the last few months with uh covid and again this this scenario i mean if you turned in the scenario to to hollywood uh, they wouldn't it would be too outrageous that we would go from all of these changes that uh led to a kind of segregation of information and a segregation of opinion to a virus that caused us to actually physically segregate and be alone in our rooms looking at screens as we are right now it's just too strange and i think that i think that this however we come out of this current crisis i think the communications environment is definitely going to change i don't know how i think we have to recover some way to communicate politically that's different than the way we have been doing it. I think it's very clear that the way we've been doing it didn't work very well. I don't know what those platforms are. I can see it. Again, I see a lot of these things through my students, and I have a 30-year-old daughter, so um, so I th- see it through her eyes as well. I don't know what those new platforms of communication are going to be. I think there has to be some kind of new commons and a new basis of commons. And again, I see some, I mean, there'll, there'll be a lot of very negative outcomes from this crisis, but I think there'll be some positive ones as well. And maybe even more so. We have, to, we have to find a way to the commons that's not owned privately, basically. I mean, I'm looking at, you know, the book that I did right before this was on the Rojava revolution in northern Syria, a revolution that was a democratic, anarchist, socialist, feminist, ecological revolution, and it was a real revolution. It worked. It um, hasn't yet been crushed, although it's been badly damaged by Erdogan's thugs and others. But I think there are models like that that we're going to have to look at. Yeah. One of the last things I, I wanted to ask you about was it was about positionality, not just in journalism, but filmmaking, any form of kind of production of representations. I feel like one reaction to the media sphere that we're in now is a, a kind of potentially misguided desire for a return to a kind of objective truth and an impartiality rather than an awareness of positionality. So, and I was wondering how you think about that in your writing and how you think about, because obviously you get a real sense of your position as, you know, you're not kind of looking down upon things. It's a very kind of like corporeal kind of way to write about politics is to kind of be around these people, talking to people. Um, and I was wondering about, how you see yourself in your position and, and how you think writers need to incorporate their positionality instead of striving to kind of ignore it. Yeah, well, I appreciate your characterization of what of how I approach it as a writer. I don't believe in uh, this 
objectivity. I don't, I mean, that's partly the result of how I've lived my life as a writer. I, I, I haven't been an academic and I haven't been a journal, a working journalist for the most part. Consequently, I've been free to, um, to, ha to occupy a position and, and positions and not have to worry about uh, being, well, I haven't had to worry, I have had to worry about being sidelined and lacking access, but not losing a livelihood. So my position is very, very different, but I just don't, I don't think, and especially as things are changing in our environment, I don't, people disagree and they disagree strongly and that's not going to go away. And the way to get through that is not to retreat from it into some kind of neutral territory. I, that, that's just not going to happen. Certainly not in America. Okay, great. I think that's a great place to leave it. That's uh, okay with you. Thank you. Thanks for doing uh, this. Yeah, well, thank you for speaking to me. I've been really looking forward to it. It's been, it's been really great. Appreciate it. Bye.